what we need is grounded, courageous sensitivity that is aware that we are this living earth in a developmental period, in a transitory developmental state. Now we're living in the most turbulent, most alive time in a way you could say. But we're not equipped yet to show up for it. We're not equipped yet to be in ecstasy, to be ecstatic about how life is reorganizing itself right now. And the beauty that happens if you're engaging in an effortful life where you're willing to invest something is that more and more there's a positive feedback loop happening. You are becoming excited by the effort. Welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepid End News. Today's guest is Leonard Hennig. Leonard was on the show a few weeks ago. We had such a wonderful conversation then and subsequently had also the opportunity to speak. And I really wanted to explore this idea of his work, this notion that he has of looking at ADHD through the lens of biodiversity. Looking at ADHD not as a deficit, but rather as a gift. Leonard proposes in this conversation and in his work that ADHD might be a response of the world for the situation that we're in. That it's a hypersensitivity and that the world requires more sensitivity of the positive kind, not the kind that hinders the thriving of the collective. Perhaps the way that we are as a civilization shares many of the aspects of ADHD, the typical characteristics that we think of. Perhaps it is the way that the world is responding to the monoculture that we have in terms of the way we ourselves respond to it and thinking about ways to really broaden out the possibilities in terms of the neurodiversity that we have and the ability to really think about some of the ways that we could put some of these gifts to the service of all living things. I'll leave space for my conversation with Leonard Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.com. Again, that's www.coconut-thinking.com. And really look forward to your thoughts on this conversation. Hi, Leonard. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast again. We have talked uh, several times about many, many different things. And what I'm particularly excited to talk about now is making a connection, which really is about how we could break down the barriers between the me, the I, and the we, and and expand from ourselves to, to to the to the universe at large. And and we're going to have a specific entry point here about how we go, and connect neurodiversity, which we often consider as something that each individual has, to maybe what we have as as a group, as a collective, and and expanding that into biodiversity. And the entry point that we're going to have is your work with with ADHD, your experience with ADHD the way that you are an educator about ADHD and different experiences. And, and I think this is going to be a wonderful launch pad into so many different possibilities. So let's let's start with, with the beginning, which is uh, ADHD. Could you walk us through your experiences with ADHD, your learning about it, which will be different from what most listeners might be used to hearing? Thanks, Benjamin. Yeah, I'm super glad to be back here. Our conversations so far have been really beautiful and inspiring. And I particularly love that we have the opportunity to talk about this topic today, because it has been unconsciously one of the biggest topics of my life. And I think the advantage I have in dealing with this topic is 
that by having ADHD, I'm also someone who is a constant learner and who is just incurably curious about anything. And most of my life, I've understood that ADHD is seen as a disorder or a condition. So I should have felt not ashamed or bad about it. Usually, if you, you're told that you have a disease or an illness that automatically kind of frees you from a perspective of guilt about your behavior, but somehow around ADHD, it's different. I've noticed that people with ADHD are in a constant vicious cycle of shame and guilt and emotional dysregulation. And I can really emphasize with that. I've most of my life felt really stuck in the public opinion, the mainstream opinion about ADHD as describing people who are really lazy and unfocused. And although I knew that that's not the case and that there is a neurobiological complex underlying this condition and these symptoms, I've pretty much internalized the, the mainstream perspective that this is also about laziness and lack of focus and lack of motivation, lack of drive, which in a way is true, but it's not um, a chosen a chosen state. And a year ago, I got really curious. I'm I'm not an expert in the sense of I don't have academic training to deal with neurodiversity or any form of neurological conditions. I'm by training a lawyer and an economist, and I would describe myself more as a philosopher and someone who is curious about different things. And through working a lot with trauma-aware work, doing individual coaching around personal development, integration of shadows understanding our autonomous nervous system, our sense of safety, our source of safety, how we perceive the world on a nervous system level, I got more and more curious about my relationship to ADHD. And about a year ago, I decided to stop approaching it as a problem and see if, if I approach it as a gift, as just a special way I am, if that would open up new doors, new ways of looking at it, new perspectives. And being the curious person I am, I also dived really deep into the neuroscience and into a syncretic approach, understanding this condition from different perspectives. And I realized that mostly the condition is looked at from a neuropsychiatric perspective. So from a pathological perspective, when doctors and psychologists talk about it, they talk about a condition that impairs people. And being someone who is very much driven by philosophical inquiries and by questions of metaphysical relationships, collective relationships, how does this fit into the collective motions in our culture right now? How does it fit into who we are as human beings living on a deeply intelligent, interdependent ecological system? How, what does it have to do with all these things? Culture, meaning, and also biodiversity. I'm, as we've talked about in our last episode, very involved in the creation of a regenerative agriculture project at the moment. So looking at ADHD from a regenerative lens, also from a deep ecolo deeply ecological perspective became really interesting to me. And that's when I realized there are a lot of misconceptions out there around ADHD. And they're especially 
in mainstream opinion, but unfortunately also among the people who have ADHD. So there's a big, you could say a big stigma around it. People are ashamed. And one of the most common phenomenons is that they try to mask it. They're not openly admitting or admitting even that word already says that there's something wrong. They're not openly sharing that they have a neurodiversity, but they're trying to mask it. They're trying to mask the symptoms, their behaviors, their perspectives, the relational differences they have. And that leads to a huge amount of pressure and suffering. And it also continues the spiral of people around them not understanding them. People around them having projections and ideas that this person doesn't care. This person doesn't care about me. It doesn't care about its relationships. It doesn't care about what it's doing in the world. So they are suffering from the fact that they're not really accepting who they are. And that broke my heart in a way. I've seen, I've started to look more openly into my own history, into my own relationship with other people, with work, with projects, with who I am, and seen that I've done the same. I've also participated in this typical ADHD thing of coming up with explanations why I do things the way I do, or why I don't do certain things, or why I missed a deadline, or why I came late to an appointment. And it became normal to come up with a creative explanation for that instead of sharing, hey, listen, this is how my brain works. There are some very peculiar things that change how I look at the world and how I perceive myself in relationship with others. And it influences our connection. It influences how I show up for work. And I just started trying that out last year and dive deeper into the neurobiology. And when I did that, I realized there's a very interesting similarity between how people with ADHD with this neurodiversity um, see the world and how us on a collective level behave in the world right now. And that's a, a theme I'm exploring right now. You've mentioned the idea of neurodiversity and biodiversity could have something to do with each other. And I think that's very true. I think there is a very distorted perspective we have on neurodiversity. And as you, you just said, we always think neurodiversity is something that individuals have, which is a funny thing to say, because already the word diversity rec uh, suggests that this is about a relationship in a, in a complex um, set of numbers of people or in a, in a system. It's about a system. It's not about an individual. And the more I've started talking about neurodiversity as something that could be a natural adaptation process of an attempt of an intelligent ecosystem to turn humanity, which is mostly seen as a monoculture, which is the same way as we see our agricultural productivity, and understand that maybe this intelligent ecosystem is trying to create a more biodiverse human population that has different gifts, different perspectives that helps us out of the blind spots we have out of the issues we have in responding to a planet that is which health is in decline. And someone just mentioned a week ago to me that they don't use the word neurodiversity anymore, but they talk about neuroemergence. And in a way that made it even more clear for me that this is true, that there are emergent capacities within the collective capacity of humanity 
that we need to start learning about and that we need to start understanding and embracing as what it is a potential. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the words that other words that you might be using in order to maybe not describe, but certainly uh, frame or, or, or present ADHD. But before we get to that, I, I just want to kind of explore a little bit some of the easy touch points here so that we could really maybe just take a step back and look at what happens. So neurodiversity, neuro being the brain, we never talk about any other kind of diversity in ways that have to be fixed, in ways that make you feel weird. I mean, there's never like cardio diversity. In fact, social diversity, cultural diversity, Ethnic diversity are things that we want. We want to create that. But neurodiversity, when it comes to the cognitive, because of the separation between brain and uh, and and body and social, that is something that we we feel is a bit weird if you're not the same. So let's look at the the, the place where this is most obvious, which is schools, which kids with ADHD are either put on drugs, so synthetic medicines in order to get them to behave a certain way or change their chemical compositions so that they can act a certain way. They're put on uh, um, individual education plans. They're given accommodations. They're, they're given space to have ADHD, but only in so far that we know that we're just trying to wrangle them in in order to get to the same point as everybody else. So we're actually... It, that's where the individualization comes in because everyone has an individual education plan, as it's called, to bring them back to the fold. The monoculture, as you mentioned, the, the 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 neuro lack of diversity because of the expectations that we have. Now, that's for schools, of course, but we could probably think about that in, in multiple different areas of the world. It's just that schools are just much more obvious because we want to get kids to be a certain way. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and I think schools are one of these one of these institutions that always kind of lack a little bit behind the actual current paradigms of culture. If I look back at how my school system was and what school looked like, it feels much more like something that comes from the 19th century than something that is coming from the 21st century. And I think one of our the big ways in which school is problematic, or let's say is partial in its capacity to prepare us for a complex life is the fact that it is very unconsciously addicted to a paradigm of linearity, and a paradigm of mechanism, mechanisticness, <laughs> in a way. So schools and in the United States, we know that this is true, that the beginning industrialization and the need for skilled workers in factories have influenced the development of high schools in a, in a large degree. Schools are still in a way made to create functioning members of an industrial society, people who can show up in a typical way, you talked about the default. So in a way, the same way that we standardize production and goods, we try to standardize the success or the capacity that you receive when you go through an educational system so that you are adapted to work in a linearly thinking mechanistical industrial society. And of course, if you from that perspective now look at ADHD, you see people that are not functioning well. That's a very neutral linear understanding is how you give them the same input and the output is different. And we want to somehow find ways, medication, to push the output back to the standard, to the norm that we've defined that works well in our mechanism, in our system. 
And that's where I think our biggest, maybe we talk for a moment about what ADHD actually is. Because you've already said uh, we don't talk about cardiodiversity, it's, it's neurodiversity. And in a way, neurodiversity is already an attempt to establish a new paradigm of looking at neurological differences from an, an understanding of diversity and not from an understanding of deviation and, and problematic conditions. But still, most people think that ADHD is a disorder. And a disorder is something like a disease. It's a monocausal thing that you can measure and analyze. So you can diagnose a condition. But ADHD is not a condition. It's not a disorder. It's a complex. And the true roots of that complex are still very much unclear. But there's a, a growing understanding that it has actually a lot to do with the genetic polymorphism that was meant to create an advantage. So most ADHD people can identify with having a very high level of sensitivity, a usually very high level of intelligence, fluid intelligence, the capacity to combine different perspectives, to think outside of the box, a very high capacity to go into a state of hyperfocus and really narrow down on, on a creative process and get immersed in it and completely ignore the rest of the world for hours and hours and hours. But the problem with this hypersensitivity, this high sensitivity, if you are born into a system that is already on an emotional level quite dysfunctional and into a culture that doesn't understand what emotional regulation is, that doesn't understand what mental well-being really is, then you are born into this mechanistic system that expect, expects you to perform in a certain way. And in a way, you could look at ADHD people like as you look at a very, very sensitive, expansive measuring instrument in analytical chemistry or something that they usually cost millions and only some people are allowed to handle them and to move them from A to B in padded boxes and treat them with utmost care, understanding that they are measuring the most minuscule differences and we need to treat them with care. And an ADHD person or a person being born with this capacity for hypersensitivity is something like that, that is now just thrown into the dirt as if it was just a hammer or a screwdriver. And what ADHD as a phenomenon of a dysfunction actually is, is a lack of development. It's not a lack of neural capacity. So people with ADHD don't have a problem in their brain. They don't have a broken brain, a broken nervous system. They have a highly sensitive nervous system that didn't receive the attention, the attunement and the training when they were young to develop the degree of emotional regulation they need to be able to live with such a sensitive nervous system. And that's actually true for most human beings. Most human beings, when they're developing when they are young children, when they're in the most important developmental stage, need intensive attachment care. And what that means is they need safety, attunement, mirror delight, and affect regulation. And most of us don't get that, which is why most of us have an incomplete attachment development, which is why most of us really struggle in relationship. We're still having a really hard time discerning between the relationship with our romantic partners and the 
neurobiological priming we have around our caretakers. So often that gets confused on an emotional level. And we have sudden needs towards our partners that actually were meant to be fulfilled by our parents. And for an ADHD person, that is exaggerated. So they didn't in any way receive the emotional regulation capacities they need. And what that leads to is this typical system of uh, this typical system of a lack of executive function because of a lack of emotional regulation. And it's often looked at as a lack of executive function per se, but it's actually just the fact that they cannot access their prefrontal cortex or their orbitofrontal cortex where we make executive decisions, even when we are faced with emotional stimulation and where we can decide, I'm going to make this do this instead. I'm not going to submit to the emotional impulses and instincts. I'm going to sit down and get this done because I decided to. And th this capacity, this executive functioning lies in our prefrontal cortex. And this is where the healthy dopamine path pathways are. The mesocortical pathway, which is also called control dopamine. This is where we can use dopamine to make strategies, long-term planning, where we are a, a cold CEO that is just ex executing what it decided. But this area is only accessible when you are emotionally regulated or when you have the capacity to emotionally regulate yourself. And this is one of the key lacks that people with developed ADHD have is an absolute overwhelm in the face of emotional stimulation. So the first thing that happens is their prefrontal cortex isn't accessible fully anymore. And then they can only access the dopamine pathways in their mesolimbic pathway, which is made for desire, distraction, wanting something, being curious about anything. It's basically that child on the backseat that, backseat that constantly says, look, 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 there, I need to pee, I'm hungry, this, 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 I want, I want, I want more, more, more. And that's in a way the state you are often collapsing into if you have ADHD. But the good news is it's not a broken prefrontal cortex. It's just one that isn't fully emotionally matured yet. So investing into the right work and training can help someone with ADHD to develop these self-regulation capacities and to strengthen their access on the orbitofrontal cortex. And that changes everything. Suddenly you become a human being that has will. And I want to explore that. I just want to ask a question here about the caregiver and the role about receiving the emotional regulation or the tools for emotional regulation. What does that look like? Because it, it certainly can't be so simple or, or, or wrong-headed to think that caregivers just aren't giving the right emotion. And of course, there's a particularly sensitive child and, and it's contextual and it's relational. But what exactly does that mean that they're not or have not received the, the right environment or, or responses for emotional response so it's by no means meant to blame i'm not saying like oh all the parents of the baby boomer generation are just mean parents and they didn't care of their children it's more a systemic cultural blind spot that we still have we're just coming out of a left brain addicted culture in integral terms you would talk about an orange culture that is all about mechanisms science reason reductionistic thinking analytics, compartmentalizing. And in that paradigm, we had still had a very lack, very much a lacking understanding of emotional 
um, states of emotional regulation of what that even is. And that is just changing thanks to people like Daniel Siegel and Stephen Porges and all the other people in the somatic field, in the trauma awareness field. We're starting to get more and more understanding in the mainstream of what emotional needs we have as neurobiological beings. And we start to get a better understanding of what trauma is and specifically what developmental trauma is. And in a, you, can, you can say that for a child, when it's born, especially in the first two years, it doesn't have a developed sense of self. It doesn't understand or it doesn't believe yet into, into the illusion that we are separate selves. It, it is born as a boundless oceanic being. And it already has a nervous system that has emotional states, but it doesn't recognize the system or identify the system as an individual system. And it cannot regulate this system. So what happens is that the internal emotional state of a child is very much blended with the state of their parents. So when the parents are dysregulated, the child is dysregulated. And when the child is dysregulated and the parents don't know how to synchronize their own nervous systems with the nervous system of the child through attunement and presence and breath and touch and movement and sound, then the child's nervous system doesn't have any chance to downregulate. It doesn't have any chance to understand how do I come out of a temper tantrum? How do I come out of a state of anger? How do I come back into presence? And for that, it needs real life modeling by the parents, not an explanation, but an actual parent that attunes to the child, comes with a capacity of presence and regulates their own nervous system in a way that the child can learn from and get an imprint, get an understanding of, oh, she's slowing down her breath. She's creating presence. She's removing all the distractions. She's connecting to her body, she's breathing slower, she's making sounds, she's feeling her emotions, and I'm noticing the impact it has on me. And this modeled affect regulation is an essential piece in developing healthy individuation. And coming out of a collective culture of trauma and war, and emotional insensitivity of hundreds of years of being in an industrial mechanistic environment most of us don't have this capacity of attunement not even to our own nervous systems you could say from an emotional development perspective most adult human beings are actually not that they're not adult they're living still in an immature attachment-based paradigm of emotional dependence their emotional state depends on someone else's emotional state there's no capacity to say, oh, wow, this is what I'm experiencing right now. I'm noticing an activation in my nervous system. I'm noticing a fight or flight instinct kicking in. And I'm making myself aware of this response in my body. I'm creating a bit more space. I'm regulating myself into presence to have full access to my human cognitive potential. And then I'm going to take a look around and see what the situation actually is. Then I'm going to engage in creativity, compassion, courage, curiosity to connect to someone, to hear what their perspectives are, and to make a more adult, more mature, responsible decision about how I want to walk about my life. And this is a capacity we lack. And I feel like this is exactly 
where ADHD is also starting to point us towards our cultural deficits. So you mentioned a lot about it being a superpower and potential for creativity and for being able to do things that might not always be possible or probable for for everyone. Tell us more about this. Tell us more about how it could be seen as abundance rather than scarcity, how it could be seen as something that adds to the whole rather than having to be jammed into the whole. Beautiful. Yeah, we're going into a very complex um, type of perception that we need here. There's this law that we talk about a lot in integral theory and in systems theory as above, so below. Every micro is a model for the macro. Everything that we study in detail gives us more information about how the collective works and how these local rules express themselves on a collective, more complex, dynamic level. And in a way, it feels like to me, ADHD is almost like an intelligent planet pointing us to a model to say like, hey, if you understand this model, you'll understand what's going on collectively. And if you look at the three top symptoms of someone with ADHD, then you can say that's the lack of executive functioning. It's the emotional dysregulation or the lack of capacity to do emotional regulation. And it is a distorted sense of time. We sometimes say that ADHD uh, neuro can have something called time blindness. They're not really able to estimate how long things will take like take they're not really able to connect to their future self and understand that the decisions they're making now affect themselves in the future they're in a way in a kind of temporal dissociation they're disconnected from the future and they have they don't have this abstract understanding how time works they know it they know it on an abstract level but they don't have an embodied sense of time they will always leave the house too late. They will always show up late. Um, they will always plan too little time for things they want to do. And then, of course, get frustrated. They don't get done. They come into their the vicious cycle of shame, guilt, and, and dysregulation, which exact, then leads to a loss of executive functioning. And then they are in a multiple-day depression and not getting things done anymore. So these three symptoms, time blindness, emotional dysregulation, lack of executive function, if you zoom out and you look at our culture collectively, that's exactly the state we're in. We're expecting from us individual adults that we behave in a sensible manner in terms of time and executive functioning and have our emotions under control. But on a collective level, we're a dysregulated little ch child. And executive function is always about transforming what you know into agency and action a lack of executive function means you know what to do but you can't do it and this is exactly where we are as a culture we know since at least 50 years that the that we have climate change we know that the biosphere is really hurting we know that there is a massive loss of biodiversity we know about soil erosion we know about desertification we know about the loss of aquifers, healthy aquifers that can sustain us with water. We know about all these things. We know that the climate is collapsing in a much faster degree than we th thought. We already see the loss of many, many species. We already see desertification growing. We already have soil erosion problems everywhere in the world. 
we know that within the next 50 to 60 years, our soils will not be capable anymore to produce enough food for us. This is all very important information, and it's not new. It's not coming up in the last couple of years. This is information that we have since 60 years. And then you look at our actions and our decisions, and they're in a complete incoherence with what we know. It doesn't, they don't add up. We're in an emotionally dysregulated state. We're running for the distractions. We're buying more things. We're trying to distract us with pleasure, easy pleasure without effort, which is one of the typical ADHD things. We can talk about effort in a moment. It's a very interesting um, perspective on what ADHD is about. But to come back to that, our culture is in time blindness. We don't make, we don't understand the future that is coming. We understand it on a, an abstract level, but not on an embodied level. We think that climate change and ecosystem collapse and self-termination are these abstract um, meta crises that future generations might have to deal with. We don't feel collectively in our body that this is happening already right now. So we're emotionally dysregulated. We don't show up with the proper executive decision making. And this is exactly how an ADHD person feels. We know what's going on, but we, we don't know how to act from the knowledge. And one of the gifts that people with ADHD often have is that they immediately in their body feel the things that are going on. The problem is with the lack of dysregulation, uh, with the lack of emotional regulation, it is hard to, to come back into the capacity for presence, come back into the non-dopaminergic system that allows us to actually be here right now and feel what's happening. And I feel like this is the gift of ADHD besides the fact that they have this high capacity for hyper-focus, the extraordinary creativity, the unbound curiosity, and the often very high level of fluid intelligence is that the problems they are dealing with are the problems we're dealing with collectively. So from someone integrating their ADHD and making the powerful choice and the effort to move out of the condition and into the manifest potential of this capacity is a direct model for what we need to do as a society. We need to learn emotional regulation. We need to develop as a capacity for presence and right brain awareness for life as it's happening right now, experiencing life instead of creating these abstract artificial representations about life in our left brain. And most of our culture is living, sitting on the couch, watching a movie inside of their brain that is a representation of what their senses are picking up, but they're dissociated from the actual direct experience, which needs right brain support it needs right brain mediation to be in an interdependent present aware state of experiencing life as an emotional participation in something infinite and i think that's what adhd is teaching us all how to achieve that how to move beyond the heavy obstacles of not knowing how to move beyond these emotional states what is coming to my mind is the fact that if you are describing one of the characteristics of ADHD as hypersensitivity as a civilization, and I use that vaguely or with a capital C or, or everyone, uh, however you want to play with that word, 
We need more hypersensitivity towards each other, towards other living things. We need more of that, not less. Less trying to smother the sensitivity and opening up so that we can connect and feel these relationships that are more loving and supportive and, and caring for, for everything that's on earth and every living being. Yes. And, or I would almost say, but what we see right now is a drastic increase of the dysregulated sensitivity. We all get more and more sensitive and irritable and, and sensitive in the negative sense that we're not able to actually endure a tiny sense of stimulation anymore. We're fighting against everyone who is daring to offend us, everyone who is challenging the models we have created in our mind about how life should be is attacked. And that's left brain dysregulated states. We create models, generalized models about we think how life is. And when it turns out that these models aren't worth the paper they're written on, to say it in that way, we try to attack the, uh, the anomalies. We're trying to attack everyone who challenges the model. And that's what the left brain does. The left brain fights for the survival of its models. The right brain knows perfectly well that the world is full of anomalies. Every model is limited and partial and will be obsolete very soon. And the right brain is excited about that. The right brain wants us to overcome our models, wants us to expand our knowledge, improve our models by letting them fail, which is what a true scientist would do. And in the last years, we have seen how much we're actually incapable to show up for a true scientific reason because we are addicted to try to keep our models, let our models survive so we don't have to deal with surrender and mystery and not knowing. And the fact that we don't have any idea what is going on in this whole cosmos, we are very much not knowing what this is about. We don't even know what consciousness is. We don't know what the core of our living experience is made of and what it is about. So the most genuine response to that would be humility and curiosity and creativity and courage and leaning in. And I think what we need is grounded, regulated hypersensitivity. We don't need to become even more irritable, even more asking other people to treat us like fragile beings that are constantly at the risk of being offended. What we need is grounded, courageous sensitivity that is aware that we are this living earth in a developmental period, in a transitory developmental state. We don't know a lot, but we know how to show up. We, we can know by now how to emotionally regulate ourselves so we can actually be present for the exciting roller coaster this life is right now and everything is shaking everything is being disrupted our whole structure our cultural fabric is disintegrating right now and of course that's scary but if we come up with the capacity to regulate ourselves in the face of fear and show up and understand that fear was given to us to make us aware of what matters to call us into presence, to say, hey, stop what you're doing. Stop distracting yourself. Take a deep breath. Turn around. Look at this. This is important. This matters. This is what life is about right now. Be here. 
this is what fear is for. I'm, I know that this is why nature has given us fear to be present, to show up. But since we are a collectively dysregulated, immature being, we don't know how to deal with it. No one explained us the affect regulation mechanisms we need to show up for fear in the way it was meant. To stop, take a breath, turn around and be excited about not knowing what's happening next. Be courageously walking forward, saying yes to the unknown, saying yes to a state of surrender, saying yes to life. All of these possibilities we have right now, we're living in the most turbulent, most alive time in a way you could say, but we're not equipped yet to show up for it. We're not equipped yet to be in ecstasy, to be ecstatic about how life is reorganizing itself right now. And instead we numb out, we collapse, we dissociate, we distract ourselves, we buy more shit we don't need. We disappear on TikTok and YouTube and Facebook and numb all our sensory capacity, numb our capacity for presence, and we disappear. We don't participate in life, but life's going to happen anyway. Life's not going to wait for us to postpone policies for hundreds of years. It's going to slap us in the face in whatever way it needs to so that we wake up and realize what's going on. And in a way, that's the sad truth about the human capacity to make an effort is we only do it when necessary. We only grow when we have to. We only develop when things are crumbling and destroying itself. When we realize, oh, this is one of those breakthrough or breakdown moments. What do I want? I'm absolutely in line with you about this need to differentiate between the sensitivity that, that is negative and, and the one that's more life-affirming. And certainly the pronoun that you used, we, kept coming back with we, 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 which is a very right brain way to look at the world about bringing us together, not I, but we. And, and I think that this idea of effort you bring up makes me think of, of course, the first thing that came in my mind was it's one of the steps in, uh, in the Buddhist uh, uh, path to, uh, to, to, to enlightenment, right, right effort. I also think of the fact that it comes from, from the same root as force, uh, strength, that it is effort is seen as something that oh that we carry, but it's also could be switched into a positive, into a creative force. Again, same root word. Tell us a little bit about your ideas and 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 thoughts about effort. Yeah, beautiful. I love that segue. <laughs> You're offering so many things to dive into right now. And effort is one of these things that, like everything that is important and that has meaning and has value, is contradictory. Everything that is worth dealing with and going into a dialectical process around means there is a high degree of contradictoriness and there is, it needs us to grow our perspective to embrace the complexity of the situation. And it's right that Buddhism says right effort in its eight um, noble truth, but it also says uh, in the noble eightfold path, but it also says reduce your effort to zero. Don't make an effort. Every meditative instruction is sit down, do all the things right, and now stop doing anything right. Let go of your effort. And that's in a way beautifully describing what effort is, and that's leading us to one of the biggest misunderstandings in, in neuroscience around the neurochemistry of reward. For, for years, we, we thought, and most people still think, dopamine is about 
reward and it plays a role in our reward system but it's not about reward in the sense that we interpret it it's not about giving you pleasure it's not that so dopamine actually is about making an effort it's about doing something to get something investing work and pain and effort into improving your situation in the future so dopamine always kicks in when there is something that we don't have access to right now that we want so you can say there's like two realms of reality for human perception one is the parapersonal that is everything i can reach with my hands everything i can look at when i look down and then there's the extra personal which is everything i cannot reach everything i see when i look up into the distance and the parapersonal is mediated by all of these here and now neurotransmitters so endorphins endocannabinoids serotonin oxytocin all these neurotransmitters that give us the possibility to experience the pleasure of the here and now and the extra personal what's in the distance this is mediated by dopamine this is where we need to have a dopamine base line to be willing to make an effort the pleasure of receiving what we receive there is mediated by some something else so when i get up in the morning and the first thing i do is to receive a lot of pleasure without needing to make an effort like scrolling on my phone checking facebook eating something that's lying around i'm telling my body that today i don't need to make an effort to receive pleasure pleasures are available right here don't waste energy and there's an evolutionary uh, intelligence in that if you're sitting on a tree full of mangoes it would be stupid from an evolutionary perspective to get up and walk to the other end of the valley to see what's there we're supposed to be um, sustainable and efficient with our energy consumption so when we have a lot in the parapersonal space our dopamine uh, our brain down regulates dopamine and says don't make an effort things are here go enjoy if on the other hand we need to make an effort to receive reward our brain rewards us by increasing our dopamine baseline and saying yeah go make more effort effort is the right thing to do right now and that's what's broken for us adhd people we have a lot of access to this mesolimbic wanting desire system but we don't have a lot of access to this long-term system that is willing to make effort and that's what i teach my participants in the adhd courses i started doing now is how to set up your life to create more effort to go through more pain so that your body naturally upregulates your dopamine levels like taking an ice cold shower in the morning and going for a walk outside having a healthy breakfast doing some meditation and in the first one or two hours not even touching your phone if you start your day like that as opposed to reaching to your nightstand and grabbing your phone and getting a lot of pleasure in your opioid system because of all the things you're blinking and all the beautiful things you're receiving there then you're starting the day by draining all your energy into the gutter and then trying to get things done and that's going to be painful so effort is is about the willingness to endure some form of pain and discomfort to get a reward and the beauty that happens if you're engaging in an effortful life where you're willing to invest something 
is that more and more there's a positive feedback loop happening. You are becoming excited by the effort. You're wondering, how can I make a little bit more effort? How can I go through a bit more pain? How can I reduce my comfort even more? And that's a state where you are then in that flow state, that transient hypofrontality where everything is just easy because you want to do things because your dopamine is high. So I feel like that's another big teaching for us collectively and culturally is our economical system tries to tell us that a measure of success is the amount of comfort you can afford. The more things you have available at your fingertips, the more successful you are. But what that actually creates is a collective that is incapable of making any effort and having successes because we optimize our lives for the minimum effort, minimum pain, minimum discomfort. And what happens collectively, neurobiologically, is our collective dopamine level goes down and we, we actually then become lazy and we become addicted to comfort. We choose the pizza delivery over cooking something healthy. We choose to stay on the couch and watch Netflix and numb out instead of going to meet a friend, working out, reading a book. Like all these things that we're so aware of have something to do with us organizing our lives around increasing the levels of comfort. And I feel like the more we are challenging that, the more we are willing to organize our life towards purpose instead of comfort the more we will get a healthy relationship to effort again. And that's then the effort that is the right effort from the perspective of the Buddhist teachings. And that's not the effort we're trying to switch off when sitting down and trying to wake up. You brought that together so beautifully. I have to say that was, uh, that was really uh, you know, inspiring. And, and I love how you're bringing about purpose and purpose as individuals, as a collective, as together. And trying to cultivate a life that is richer, more meaningful, whatever that might mean to, again, at the diverse perspectives that we have, so long as we uh, work towards creating these spaces of love and trust and care. I want to end here by asking you about the course that you hinted at and the one that you gave last weekend. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, in a way, I, I've come across so much gold when researching ADHD and I've tried to out so many protocols for myself to get myself out of the vicious cycle pitfalls that at some point I realized I've also experimented with medication I'm a very open-minded person so using plant medicine using psychedelics using medicine has been a huge part of my developmental journey so I'm always very open-minded as to what are things I have the choice to work with to create different states. And I've been very curious when I started trying to create healthy daily habits and protocols to become more willing to make effort. I wanted to know how does my brain feel like when I'm on Elvance, when I'm on Listex methamphetamine, uh, Listex amphetamine, not met. And so I took the, the commonly prescribed ADHD medication just to have an imprint, to feel from the inside, how does this neuroscience cocktail, this neurotransmitter cocktail, this neurochemistry feel like, taste like? What am I trying to recreate? And from that, I've created protocols that mimic the state, that create a natural state of high dopamine levels. And I decided I want to share all this. I want to create a 
com comprehensive curriculum for people with ADHD to learn about their state, because that's what's missing the most. I'm sometimes telling my students, you have to look at ADHD as a Formula One car that is born into a world full of highly optimized trucks that are working in a coal mine. From that perspective, the Formula One car is completely dysfunctional. It's super sensitive. It's constantly having issues. It constantly needs maintenance and care. And it's not able to carry anything. It's not really useful. It's not functional. Or there's this quote that says, if you judge a fish by its capacity to climb trees, it will feel dumb for the rest of its life. And that's, in a way, the context we put people with ADHD into. We don't train them how to use this particular exciting vehicle they've received, but we just try to force them to be like everyone else. And I've created like a list of the three poisons and the three medicines for my students. And the three poisons are pleasure without effort, trying to be neurotypical, and the shame and guilt vicious cycle. And this trying to be neurotypical in a way it's is what our culture has mirrored back to us as an expectation. And it's what leads to most of the problems with living with ADHD. Like I've said in the article um, we've discussed that Michael Phelps, Albert Einstein, um, so many successful, highly intelligent people have ADHD because they used it as the superpower that it is because they created the context and the environment where they could just be themselves not because they tried how to be neurotypical how to be normal so one of the medicines besides the presence creating emotional regulation emotional hygiene getting curious about effort and pain and discomfort is acceptance one of the most important pieces is that we stop trying to be neurotypical, that we have a capacity for acceptance and doing things our way, understanding that there are some things that work for most people that don't work well for us. Like doing our taxes once a month is a horrific context for someone with ADHD to be in. So I decided to learn programming and build a system that does my taxes once a month. That was one of the crazy inefficient ways in which I utilized my curiosity and my capacity to learn quickly and to understand complex situations to build something that is completely over, um, how do you say, over, whatever, it's, it's oversized for its purpose. And it made me happy. I learned something new for a week that I will never need again. I've built something that solved my problem and I'm, I'm not ever doing taxes and invoices again. And in a way, that's what I'm trying to teach my, my students is to say like, hey, don't try to squeeze more rocks onto your, uh, the back of your car because that's not what you're built on, built for. Try to accept your beautiful neuroemergent condition. Try to accept that Earth has created you with purpose and with a mission to do things in a different way, because doing things the way everybody else does them has destroyed the planet. We don't need more of that. We need to start thinking out of the box. We need to start embracing our colorful ways of looking at the world, integrating multiple perspectives, and giving us permission to be who we are unapologetically and see what the powers and what the gifts in that are. And that's what I'm trying to do with my course. 
That's what I'm trying to do with my workshop. I'm launching a, a six-week ADHD mastery training uh, very soon in a couple of days that is called Attention. Because attention is what this is all about. Where do I put my attention? I don't know if the listeners will be able to turn it around in time to uh, maybe sign up to this one, but maybe there's other ones where they can find out what of what's coming up. No, the course is launching in one or two months. It's just being announced in a couple of days. So everyone can grab this. I have a website, theinstitute.one.one. Um, that's where you'll find all of my offerings. That's where you find this course. And maybe we put a link under this. Thank you, Leonard. Really appreciate, you know, all our conversation. I really am, am very grateful to know you and, and to have your ability and, and to, to just be able to touch so many points, so many entry points, so many exit points, coming back, looping around. It's uh, it's, it's really a beautiful work of art, the way you're speaking. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.com. And check out Intrepid Ed, www.intrepidednews.com. Again, Coconut Thinking, www.coconut-thinking.com. And if you like this podcast, subscribe, leave us five stars, and so forth. And in the meantime, we will speak to you soon. Bye-bye.